Hello, this is Everwonder from the California Science Center. I'm Perry Roth Johnson. For the past few episodes, we've been talking to robotics experts about everything from robot swarms to human-robot interactions. If you haven't already listened to those episodes, go check them out. Now, one thing all these roboticists have in common is that they build robots that are used right here on Earth. But that's not the only place robots can be useful. Do you ever wonder how engineers build robots that go to space? This past July, NASA launched Perseverance, its latest and most ambitious Mars rover. It was designed and built at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, right here in the LA area, not far away from the Science Center. To learn more about building space-ready robots, I talked to Matthew Frost. He's a roboticist and cognizant engineer at NASA JPL, who is responsible for the robotic arm on the Perseverance rover. We also talked about some of his past projects that haven't left Earth just yet, like robots for rock climbing or search and rescue, and how they compare to his spacefaring creations. So, Matthew Frost, you are a roboticist and cognizant engineer uh, for the robotic arm in the Mars 2020 rover at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Welcome to the show. Yay! <laughs> we're really excited to talk to someone uh, who works on the Mars rover. Uh, we're big fans of it here at the Science Center. And and I know you design robots at JPL, which is probably most famous for making robots that go to space, like the Perseverance rover uh, that's supposed to land on Mars next February. Uh, congrats, by the way. Um, but you also designed robots for extreme environments here on Earth. You've worked on rock climbing robots, search and rescue robots. Um, so you're obviously like building lots of cool stuff, have broad expertise in this field. Uh, but before we dig a little deeper, I just want to start, uh, with some basics. Uh, first of all, what is a cognizant engineer? And I understand that there's a, there's a nickname for them. And, and can you explain that? Yeah, that's true. Uh, cognizant engineers is basically a responsible engineer. You're, you're responsible for all aspects of the design, uh, build, and test of a, of a subsystem. So for the robotic arm, that's, that's what I was in charge of, uh, mm-hmm. designing the robotic arm, making sure it got tested properly, and integrating it with the, with the rover and the rest of the spacecraft. Uh, and, the, and the nickname is Kagi. That's what we call our, ourselves, Kagis. So are you one of those people that we sometimes see wearing white bunny suits around the Mars rovers when you guys are putting it together? <laughs> uh, yes, that, yes, I am one of those people. Um, certainly when we did the integration to the, to the front of the Perseverance rover, I was down there. Um, f- funny story about that. I had a friend back when, um, back when MSL, the, the Curiosity rover, was being built, who was also in a bunny suit down there. And there was a chat room associated with, with the... Uh, with the live feed mm-hmm. and he would sit on his computer and he'd type and he'd say, see that guy sitting at the computer, I'm going to make him dance, watch this. And then he'd get <laughs> up and dance and, and all the people in the chat room would be like, no way, how did you do that? And he'd sit down, watch, I'm going to do it again. I <laughs> know, <laughs> uh, but sometimes I am, I am the person in the buddy suit. Uh, I, I text my wife before I go in there to see if she could, she could recognize me. Um. <laughs> awesome. So, so, as a coggy, uh, when when you're in there, uh, you're what what are you doing? You're like watching to make sure that the robot arm gets hooked up properly to the rest of the vehicle, or what what are you doing while you're down there? Yeah, the first time I went down there, that was exactly it. We were we were we were attaching the robotic arm to the front panel of the rover. Um, you know, 
Kagis are we're, we're, we're the engineers, we're the designers, uh, we're the shepherds of the hardware, uh, but we don't actually get to touch it very often. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually it's the technicians that get to the, do the touching job. Um, they're the hands, they've got good hands. Right. Uh, so we, we follow the procedures that were written to, to install it uh, and make sure everything goes goes well. And if anything funny happens, uh, we hit the stop button and say, hold on, let's let's make sure this is right. So I want to talk, talk a little bit more specifically about um, what the robot arm is supposed to do on Perseverance on Mars 2020 rover. Like, can you give me a sense of the tools that it has, what its mission is, what it's supposed to do on Mars? Yeah, so the robotic arm, uh, it's it's five degrees of freedom. That means it has five five twisty joints. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the robotic arm is a turret. And on that turret, there are a number of instruments uh, and there's a core. Uh, the core is basically a drill that allows us to, to, to drill into the Martian surface, collect rock samples, and then take those samples and put them, we, we actually dock the robotic arm and the core with the front panel of the rover, and we can transfer, transfer those samples that the core has collected back into the rover. Uh, and inside the rover, there's another system called the sample, uh, sample caching assembly that takes those samples and, and, and caches them uh, for a later return mission to come and bring them back to Earth. Uh, the arm also has on it uh, a number of science instruments, like a mass spectrometer that allows it to analyze rock surfaces. Um, it has different bits on the core, so it can. Uh, there's there's bits that do that do uh, drilling and core samples. There's bits that do abrading, so that you can uh, examine the surface better. Uh, there's even a, a gas dust removal tool that that blows a that blows a little puff of gas off to to clear off the dust after you've abraded. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah wow so okay normally you think of like um i don't know maybe like vacuum to get to get the dust off but you guys are doing the other (laughs) thing you're blowing air at it (laughs) it's like the opposite of a dust buster (laughs) it's pretty hard to make a vacuum on on mars mars atmosphere is about one one hundredth the atmosphere on earth so Uh you could make a vacuum but it wouldn't it wouldn't work very well so it's easier just to to blow a puff of air on it so we actually there's a gas dust removal tool that carries a a cylinder of i think i'm not sure what gas it is i think it might be uh i think it might be co2 mm-hmm. uh, it could be could be nitrogen too I, i'm not positive i have to check my facts on that okay so like if it was co2 it would kind of be like those those cans that you use to clean your keyboards, like the dust that gets in between all of the keys on your keyboard. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is, yeah. 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 Okay. It's a little all dust right. removal. Um, I, I don't want to bury the lead, though, because like the most exciting thing about this mission that distinguishes it from other ones is that you guys are trying to do sample return. You're trying to collect bits of rock, put it in a titanium tube that then gets stored in the belly of the rover. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah. Is that the main difference between the robotic arm on Perseverance uh, from the Curiosity rover MSL uh, that, mm-hmm. that went a few years earlier? Yeah, uh, the Curiosity rover uh, internally was called MSL, which stands for the Mars Science Laboratory, and it was mm-hmm. essentially a rolling science laboratory. And it would collect samples and bring them into the into the rover, where it would do science on them. Uh, in what we call it in situ. Mm-hmm. Um, Curiosity's main difference, uh, or sorry, uh, Perseverance's main difference is that, yeah, we're collecting these samples. We're going to do a little bit of science on the surface using the turret-mounted instruments. Uh, but the main, the main crux of the mission is to, is to cache them for a later sample return mission. There's so much more science we can do once we get the samples back to Earth. Um, and, like, how long have you guys been, been working on this uh, before launch? It's like a, 
a multiple year project probably <laughs> oh boy uh i'd have to go back and, and check my emails but i think i've been on this project for six years wow, wow. <laughs> yeah a long time so it's been it must fun, have though. it must have been uh especially wild at the end uh because I imagine you had to adjust your, your operations for the pandemic when, when it hit in, in March, yeah. right there at the tail end before you guys launched. Uh, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Um, NASA and JPL stepped up and did it and did a fantastic job uh, keeping us safe. Um, I got in kind of towards, uh, let's see, I had, I had to go to Florida uh, for what we call ATLO. It's Assembly Test Launch Operations. Uh, and and do the the final stuff before we launch is to is to stow the robotic arm and 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 install its launch locks. So I had to go out for that. Um, on the on the trip there, I I, I flew I flew commercial. I, you know I, I wore I wore a mask. Uh, but I think things were get were still kind of iffy at that time. And so for the return trip, uh, NASA actually put us on a, a NASA jet. Uh, they have a small jet they use for research and development. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really cool. So we got to we got to fly out. Um, from from uh, the space shuttle uh, runway. Oh wow! <laughs> really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Super jealous about that. Well, you must be really excited for for Perseverance uh, to arrive in February, and you know, fingers crossed that, that the mission is successful. Yeah, I'd say excited and, and still a little nervous. I, I I don't think I'll be able to to sleep really well at night until after we've done our first first core samples and and feel good <laughs> that everything's working properly. Uh, right. I know we did our job right, but there's there's always that you know. That inkling in the back of your mind, like, oh, I hope it all works right. Well, aside from your work, your robots going to space, how does your work compare to, like, Spot, the robotic dog that Boston Dynamics is making, um, or even the robots that Amazon has run around its warehouses uh, to get all our, our packages for shipment? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so designing a robot to go to space versus designing a robot to do things uh, on Earth, is, is a, they're, they're very different. Um, for one thing, with with space robotics, um, you have a finite amount of, of power that, that a spacecraft or a rover can generate, mm-hmm. and you have to work within those power constraints. So f- for a robotic arm, um, there's two things that are important. One is how much torque, which is the twisting force that that arm can produce, right. and the other is speed, which is how fast it can move. Well, the math behind it is speed times torque equals power. So if you have a set amount of power uh, available, um, your your speed and torque then are, are, are basically related by that. Mm-hmm. So for, for Mars rovers, for example, we, we need a lot of torque in order to do our job, but we don't really care too much about the speed. So we make that trade where the arm moves relatively slowly. If you saw it moving on Earth, you'd say, boy, why is it going so slow? But on Mars, it doesn't really matter if it takes five minutes for it to unstow and reach a science target on the workspace. Um, that, that, could, that could put somebody to sleep if it was an, an Earth robot. Uh, so we make those kinds of trades. The other thing that's really important is, is the reliability. Uh, there's no service center up on Mars to, to fix a broken robot. Uh, mm-hmm. You can't send humans there to yet uh, to fix it so we, we have to make them we have to make them super reliable so that's one of the things we do is, is is make them extremely reliable we also test them in the relative environments so we test them in them in uh, simulated martians environments so we, we put them in thermal vacuum chambers where we get them down to mars pressures and we take them to all kinds of temperature temperature extremes hot and cold uh, to make sure they work and they'll survive on the lunar uh, the martian surface 
switching gears uh, a little bit, I want to talk about some of your robots that don't go to space. Sure. But at least for now, um, are, are staying here on Earth. You worked on this this rock climbing robot that uses something called a micro spine gripper. That's uh, right. For, first of all, like before we get in, into what a micro spine gripper is, like why work on a rock climbing robot like this? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, if you talk to talk to scientists, the the really interesting places to go. Are, are around the cliff faces. Um, so for example, you know, you can see the stratification of soil and as you go down layers, you, you go down thousands and thousands of years. So for looking at a, looking at a cliff um, and, and actually having a robot that can climb a cliff and go up and down a cliff wall uh, is very appealing because you can go back, you know, millennia, uh, right. just, just in a couple of feet. So designing a robot to do that seemed a, like, a, like a wonderful way to, to help explore uh, Mars and other areas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we wanted to test the technology out on its on Earth first. It's really mm -hmm. new new stuff. It came out of uh, out of Stanford. Uh, Dr. Aaron Parnes was uh, was working on the technology, and, and I helped him design the the first microspine grippers that we used at JPL uh, for this lemur lemur robot. So so you're basically like trying to do a proof of concept, make sure it works on Earth before you stick it on a rocket and, and send it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Right. We have what we call technology readiness levels. Uh, and so they start at, you know, technology readiness level or TRL level one, which is essentially a nap napkin sketch. And they go all the way up to TRL nine, which is, hey, it's been demonstrated in, in, in flight and it works. So, yes, we're trying to we're trying to push that TRL up a little bit, uh, one step at a time. OK, so like Mars 2020 rover would have been TRL nine. Right. And this uh, rock climbing robot would have been what more on the lower end? Yeah, more on maybe on the three. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's a little bit, yeah. little better than a napkin sketch. Yeah, you, yeah. you can touch it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we were kind of joking earlier. You know, you can't go to Home Depot on Mars, but to some extent, you know, there's not even really robot stores here on Earth. If you want to build <laughs> something, you know, to crawl up a rock wall, you gotta uh, start somewhere. You gotta find someone um, like. Dr. Aaron Parnes, you know, who has this design and then, and then you develop it. Um, but, but like, talk to me a little bit about like when all you have is, is an idea and you don't have a store that has the, the ready-made parts for you to like, to buy off the shelf. How, how do you start to de develop that idea into something that, that you can build and test? How, how do you even approach that when it's like this one-off thing? Right. Uh, that's a good question too. So we knew what we wanted to do. We wanted to have micro spines that you could drag along the rock surface. And we wanted those spines to be on sort of independent suspensions so that they could naturally find uh, the asperities in the rock. Uh, asperities is just a fancy word for cracks and crevices and little mm -hmm. holes. So imagine dragging a cat's paw along the surface of a rock and the claws digging into little holes uh, on the rock surface. Uh, so, the first thing we did was we needed to, we needed to look for some sort of some some sort of spines to use. So we we found fish hooks. Uh, I can't remember what number they were, but they're very very small fish hooks. Uh -huh. And I remember I remember when we placed the order for the fish hooks, the the, the store probably freaked out because we were like, yeah, we need ten thousand ten thousand of your smallest <laughs> fish hooks. <laughs> it's like the biggest order they've ever gotten, probably. <laughs> yeah, somebody's going gold fishing. <laughs> um, Anyway, so we got yeah, so we got a lot of these fish hooks. Um, we we actually employed a, a kind of unique uh, new manufacturing process where we we used a, a CNC, which is a normal uh, computer numerically controlled milling machine, to mm -hmm. cut into wax blocks and then 
the wax blocks were basically molds and we'd put the fish hooks in the molds and then we'd pour different types of urethane. So a hard urethane would cast uh, around the fish hook and, and hold it nice and stiff. And then we'd cast a softer urethane that was stretchy and would act like the spring like I said, to be the suspension that as you drag the hooks along the surface, uh, they could catch at different points. Mm. Uh, so that's how, that's how we made the, the first microspine grippers. Okay. Um, and as I understand it, there's, there's kind of like you, like you were alluding to multiple levels. Like you have the hooks that are kind of like almost fingernails that are catching on, on, right. on the rocks up right. to the urethane uh, that's holding it. Uh, into like these fingers and these fingers are also arranged in like a circle, a circular claw. And there's, mm-hmm. there's like springs that pull all the, all the fingers together. Like walk me through the different <laughs> levels of this thing. Cause it's, it's kind of like inception. <laughs> it, it kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like I need to double check my numbers to get them right. It's been a while since I worked on it, but yes, at the, at the, at the lowest level, uh, you have a, you have a, you have a fish hook, uh, embedded in a, in a, in a cast urethane, mm-hmm. and then you put I don't know, say fifty of them together in, mm-hmm. into what I might call a cartridge, um, and then that mm-hmm. cartridge is like the paw of of the hand, and then you and then you string together twenty different hands. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're all said and done, you can have thousands of these fish hooks, um, and you just need you know I don't know ten percent of them to get a good grip on the rock. Wait, uh, really? Yeah, you don't need all of them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so basically, we drag them across the surface. They they pull in towards each other and and mm-hmm. and, and and hook on, um, and then we have a, a method to to release them as well. We can release the load and they can they can let go. Okay. So so if you have like say three or four of these these grippers kind of attached to a centralized body or, or something like that, you could have mm-hmm. one grip, another one release, move, grip again. That's how you climb up the the rock face. Yeah. Exactly. Just curious, like, what was there a desire to put this on a future space mission? Uh, would it go to Mars? Would it go to somewhere else? Uh, actually, yeah, there was there was a lot of interest in using this technology for uh, an asteroid return mission. There was actually a, a mission to go and and pluck a rock off of an asteroid and and bring it back. Um, unfortunately, that one didn't make it past the the, the selection phase at NASA, but uh, we'll we'll probably try again sometime. Uh, it was a really neat a neat concept. Okay, I want to want to switch gears again um, to another Earth-based robot uh, that I know you've worked on called Robo Simeon. Uh, what, what does Simeon mean, first of all? <laughs> Simeon. Uh, we like to use fancy words at JPL. Fancy words and acronyms. Uh, yeah. Simeon. It, it, I, I almost feel like I need to Google. It. Simeon means ape. Uh, so ape-like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Robo Simeon is a is a robotic ape. And, and tell me what this thing looks like. Okay, yeah, I uh, well, I like to think it looks like a cuddly robotic panda, although maybe it's not so cuddly because it's metallic <laughs> uh, and it doesn't have any fur. Uh, but it is the 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 limbs are black. Uh, they have kind of um, macaroni macaroni elbow shaped li- uh, connections uh, mm-hmm. between the different joints. Uh, it's sort of black and silver looking in color. Uh, it has it has cameras uh, up on its head? Uh, well, it doesn't really have a head. It's just kind of on the top of its body. It has cameras it uses for stereo perception. Mm-hmm. Um, it was designed as as part of a response to the DARPA Robotics Challenge, um, and the DARPA Robotics Challenge came out of uh, uh, as a response to the the Fukushima power plant disaster, where people went back and looked at the, that, that disaster and, and, and thought, you know, if we had a robot that could have gone in here um, and just done a couple of simple tasks, like mm-hmm. 
uh, turn a few valves and pull a few levers, uh, a lot of this stuff could have been averted. So right, because it was a nuclear power plant. It was right? a nuclear power plant. So yeah, dangerous yeah. area for humans to go into. Very dangerous area. Right. So uh, the challenge was basically to build robots that could do these sorts of tasks, like drive a golf cart. Uh, pick up hand tools like a sawzall and cut cut a hole in, a, in some drywall, uh, mm -hmm. put your hand through the hole in the drywall and turn a valve. Uh, kind of, you know, tasks that would be pretty easy for a human, but are actually relatively difficult for, for a robot. Uh, and also be what I would call semi-autonomous. So for, for RoboSimian, we gave it kind of high-level commands like drive here, drive there, mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't tell it how to do the driving. It, 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 it knew how to turn the steering wheel on its own or, or for example, picking up a power tool, we would we would kind of tell it in the in the graphical user interface uh, mm -hmm. called a GUI. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of point to the tool we wanted it to pick up and say, "Pick up tool," and then it would grab it, and then we'd say, "Okay, cut circle," and then it would cut a circle. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that was a very fun that was a very fun project to work on. Um, as we're 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 winding down in time here, um, I just kind of have like a, a smorgasbord of kind of lightning round fun questions. Okay, first of all. I'm just curious, like, how did you end up in robotics? Because I think I was I was uh, flipping through your LinkedIn page and it said like uh, you were you were on the show BattleBots as a oh, as a boy. student. Oh, that's so embarrassing. Yes, yes, oh, is I it was. embarrassing? <laughs> I think it's super cool. I used to watch that show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We well, when when I was at uh, when I was in college at UCLA, we didn't have a robotics department. Uh, actually, now we do. We have a fantastic uh, robotics department there. Um, there wasn't one, so I, I kind of I, I tailored my classes to ride the line between controls uh, and manufacturing, mm -hmm. um, and I made it a big point that I wanted to build robots while I was in college. And the, we had an ASME, that's the American Society of Mechanical Engineering Club. Uh, they were approached by BattleBots; they wanted to build a robot, and mm -hmm. I was like, "Oh, me, me, yes, let's build robots." <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 uh, how did you guys do? Did you make it? Uh... Through a few rounds, did you make it all the way? Oh, we did ter we did terribly. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> we did okay. Uh, you know, it's the first robot I ever built. Um, mm. We did we did all right. We we I think I want to say we barely we barely lost. Uh, we were up against uh, we were up against a team from Mattel, uh, and it was clear they had a lot of money and resources. And these were seasoned no. these were seasoned engineers. Uh, they built a really beautiful robot. We built kind of a a, a dumb tank. <laughs> <laughs> But still, it, it it got you started. You don't just build robots. Um, you spend some some time teaching too. Like you have a, a how things work course um, at a local college. Yeah, that's really fun. I I also teach at Art Center uh, in my in my copious free time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a class called yeah, it's called like you said, it's called How Things Work. Uh, basically, it's 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 engineering for artists. So we've got uh, we've got a lot of. Uh, artists, they've got great talent, uh, but they don't have a lot of engineering uh, and physics and science skills. So I, I try to teach them the things uh, about engineering to help them become better artists. And a lot of them are concept artists that are going to go and work in, in the film industry or, or in video games. So we talk a lot about things like um, if you're designing an airplane, you know, you, you want to keep in mind where the center of gravity is, uh, where the center of lift is, where the thrust comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, Otherwise, they, they wind up designing things that, that engineers like myself or even science-minded people look at and say, uh, I don't think that can actually fly or won't it topple over if that happens? Mm -hmm. uh, so we focus on a lot of things like that. Um, 
we use a lot of engineering principles. I, I make them draw draw cross sections uh, to show the layouts of the vehicles that they design to make sure that that person isn't uh, you know isn't sitting on the engine you know <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> There's actually an empty space for their seat. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. It's it brings more realism to their design, uh, and it's it's really it's really fun. It's quite a delight. What else? Are there any other stories you like to share? Anything? Uh, any parting thoughts uh, that you want people to know? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I'd like to encourage, I guess, all the all the young uh, engineers out there, or, or people uh, that want to become engineers. You know, I didn't. I didn't actually know when I was a kid. I um, I like to play with Lego a lot, like 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 a lot of engineers. But I didn't really. I didn't realize there was a job called engineering um, until I got out of high school. Um, I went to high school actually for arts. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I still love art. Um, but I, I kind of missed that. Uh, you know, I was the kid that took the toaster apart and, and loved figuring mm -hmm. out how things worked. Uh, but I didn't realize I didn't realize engineering actually existed. So um, I guess I would I would encourage kids to 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 learn about engineering because it's fantastic. It's yeah. really fun, and it's a very creative enterprise too. Like there's. It's it it's sometimes characterized as being very distinct from art, but in a lot of ways, there's similarities and overlap between the disciplines. Yeah, certainly in the initial concept phases of of designing something, um, yeah, it's it's all about it's a, all about the flow of ideas, uh, and then you you know, you use, you use your creative mind to get as many ideas out there when you're brainstorming, uh, and then you use your analytical mind to say, oh, is that is that even possible, or is that possible? Uh, yeah. yeah, it uses both. It's great. Yeah, you can make prettier napkin sketches if you have artistic talent, but you still need to be creative to draw something on the napkin in the first place. <laughs> right. Or even even just, I, I, I call it, I think the right term is ideaphoria, which is like oh. how, how fast the ideas can come to you, how quickly you can come up with new ideas and stuff. Uh, and and you, you could come up with concepts for things that, are, that, are, um, that aren't maybe that great, but uh, if you can come up with a hundred concepts, maybe, maybe one or two of them will be good. Uh, mm -hmm. So sometimes that flow of ideas, which which I think art helps helps to um, to produce, uh, can be helpful in engineering as well. Well, Matthew, it's been a real pleasure and a treat to hang out with you. Thanks for uh, walking us through your work on on the robotic arm for the Mars rover uh, and the, and some of the Earth robots that that you worked on. Uh, I hope uh, more people will take a look at Robo Simeon and. And see the the cuddly panda that you see <laughs> going forward. Right. It's not a scary spider. It's a cuddly yeah. panda. Totally. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Matthew, for your time. All right. See ya. Well, that's our show, and thanks for listening. Until next time, keep wondering. Ever wonder? From the California Science Center is produced by me, Perry Roth Johnson, along with Jennifer Castillo. Liz Roth Johnson is our editor. Theme music provided by Michael Nicholas and Pond5. We'll drop new episodes every other Wednesday. If you're a fan of the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating or review or tell a friend about us. Now, our doors may be closed, but our mission to inspire science learning in everyone continues. We're working hard to provide free educational resources online while maintaining essential operations like on-site animal care and preparing for our reopening to the public. Join our mission by making a gift at californiasciencecenter.org slash support.